Well, if you would please turn with me to Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 41. It's also printed in your worship guide. Uh, Just for a little bit of background for this passage, we're in the book of Acts. We've been here for the past couple months, which is written by Luke, the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And the book of Acts picks up right after the Gospels, which, of course, tell us about the works of Jesus while he was here on earth. And Acts then tells us about the works of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and the early church as they bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And last week we saw a major step in that direction. If you remember, last week we heard about some false teachers who had come to this church in Antioch. Uh, They were teaching that in order to be Christian, the men of the faith must be circumcised. And this is a tradition Uh, This tradition of circumcision, it does come from Scripture. So the church in Antioch, they were confused by this. They were confused what to believe. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they just happened to be in Antioch, and they went back to Jerusalem to talk about it with the elders and the church leaders there. And after much debate, they came to the conclusion that there was no longer any need for circumcision. Jesus had fulfilled the ceremonial law. And this council in Jerusalem, they affirmed that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that anyone is saved. And so that's where we're picking up this week, right after this Jerusalem council settled this debate. So let's read together Acts chapter 15, 22 through 41. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. 
so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive what you might teach us today. Use this passage to convict us of our sin and to make us more into the image of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered why chickens can't fly? I mean, they can, they can fly short distances, but you never see a chicken soaring majestically like an eagle. You never see a chicken hovering effortlessly like a hummingbird. 99% of the time, when a chicken wants to get from one point to another, they just walk. Well, we used to live in Menasha, uh, right on Little Lake Butamore, and it was a prime location for watching the pelicans. And these birds are bigger than you might realize. According to Google, they weigh up to 30 pounds, which is five times heavier than the average chicken. So why can pelicans soar so majestically, so high up in the air, while chickens are barely able to get off the ground? Well, I know it has something to do with physics and aerodynamics, but if I'm being honest, I don't understand those technical reasons. I'm content with the answer that pelicans are designed for flight and chickens aren't. Well, this week, uh, our family is flying to Florida and we're going for a much overdue vacation. And um, our kids flew with us once before, but they were real little, so they don't remember it. But now they're old enough to wonder about flying and is it really safe? And our oldest, Grace, who is six years old, she's been a little nervous about flying, not bad. Uh, but it's got me thinking about how to comfort her, how to let her know that you know, there's nothing to worry about. Well, I don't think that even if I understood the physics of flight, which I clearly don't, uh, I don't think that kind of explanation would actually comfort a six-year-old. So I think a good way to comfort her is just to reassure her that the pilot knows what he's doing. The pilot knows how everything works. He knows all the things that he has to do to keep us safe. So we can just sit back and relax and enjoy the ride in peace. We don't have to be anxious about flying 10,000 feet in the air in a metal tube because people smarter than me built a good plane and it's being flown by a good pilot. We can have peace in knowing that. We can have peace in knowing who is in control. Well, do you have that kind of peace in your life? When someone comes up to you and asks, you know, how are you doing? I think 99% of the time we just respond with, I'm good, how are you? But if we were being honest with people, there are a lot of times when we are not good. Our lives can be chaotic, complicated, and painful. We have to-do lists a mile long. We have difficult bosses and difficult coworkers. We have arguments with people that we love. We have estranged relationships. Our kids stress us out, our spouse stresses us out. Not having a spouse stresses us out. 
We worry about money, about our health, about what people think about us. And then to make it worse, we spend hours on social media tricking ourselves into thinking we can have it all. We listen to podcasts that feed into our anxiety about politics and true crime. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. We are an anxious people, but we long for peace. Can we have peace? Can we find rest in knowing who is flying the plane? Can we experience peace in knowing who is in control? Well, as we'll see in our passage today, our God is a gracious king. And because of that, we can experience peace, both with him and with each other. And there are three ways that this passage shows us that we can experience his peace. First, we can know God's will for us. Second, we can rejoice in our freedom from the law. And third, we can walk through conflict in peace. So first, because God is a gracious king, we can know his will for us. The church in Antioch, they had been thrown into turmoil by these men who came to them, teaching that you have to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law in order to be a Christian. And this confused the church in Antioch. I mean, after all, the, these were newer Christians. And these guys show up arguing from Scripture that you need to do all these things. It caused a lot of confusion and anxiety among them. So after much debate, the Jerusalem Council sends this letter to Antioch with their conclusion, which we see in verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. They're saying these requirements are from God, the Holy Spirit. But the requirement to be circumcised is from man. Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic ceremonial law. And that includes the requirement to be circumcised. And for anyone to say that these certain works need to be done in order to be saved is denying the saving work of Jesus Christ. Verse 29. Abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, there's some debate over why these requirements were given to Antioch, especially when some of these are actually coming from the Mosaic ceremonial law, which is what all of this confusion is about. So why these requirements? Well, I think that the simplest explanation is that these were common practices in pagan worship ceremonies, which the Gentiles in Antioch would have been at least familiar with, if not actually taking part in. So rather than contradicting themselves, the council is actually reaffirming their point, which is this. Do not add anything to the gospel. Do not add the Jewish requirement to be circumcised. Do not add pagan worship practices. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not to be mixed with anything. To add anything else is to make it no longer the gospel. 
as Dan said last week, the gospel plus nothing equals everything. And this is the message that the church in Antioch was confused about, but the Jerusalem council is clarifying to them, you don't need to add anything else. Jesus has done it all. All of scripture testifies to this. One of our kids' favorite games to play when we're riding in the car is I Spy. You know the game, they say, I spy with my little eye something blue. And then we have to guess what blue thing they saw. And it's a really fun game for them. (laughs) But I've noticed that I'm pretty sure they're not playing fair. They just wait for me to give up guessing and then they pick whatever blue object I haven't guessed yet. There's really no way for me to win because they'll just keep switching the answer in their head to keep me guessing. Well, that's not how it is with God. We don't have to play guessing games with him. He has revealed his will to us in his word, and his will never changes. We read from the Westminster Catechism, or the Confession of Faith earlier. There's also a shorter and a larger catechism that go with it. And question three of the catechism asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is, The scripture principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What we are to believe about God and what God requires of us. It's all there in scripture. We might be thinking, well, that's great, but the Bible doesn't tell me, you know, who I should marry. It doesn't tell me if I should start looking for a new job. It doesn't tell me how to get out of this financial pit that I'm in. So what do we do when we want to pursue God's will, but scripture doesn't directly address the specifics of the issues that we're facing? Well, this passage gives us two principles that we can follow in those situations, and we can see them in verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So principle one is to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance through the word and prayer. This is what the council did earlier in the chapter by prophets for guidance. And the Bible might not tell you something specific like where God wants you to work, but as long as what you're pursuing aligns with what scripture teaches about the subject, that's a good step in discerning God's will. Now, if something that you want to do goes contrary to God's word, he is not calling you to it. Let me say that again. If something that you want to do goes contrary to God's word, he is not calling you to it. And that can be a hard pill to swallow. But if we really want to follow God faithfully, we need to be willing to surrender our desires for his better desires for us. So that's principle one. Seek the Holy Spirit's guidance. And principle two is to seek the guidance of fellow Christians. Remember, verse 28 says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. 
not to me, to us. God has placed pastors and elders over you to teach you, to shepherd you, people who care for you. He's placed mature Christians in your life who can speak biblical truth and wisdom to you. If you're trying to make a difficult decision or figure out what God wants you to do, don't go through it alone. Paul and Barnabas, they could have just made a ruling on this alone. I mean, Paul was an apostle. He could have just laid down the law. But instead, he asked for help working through this difficult subject with other faithful Christians. If Paul thought it was wise to seek the counsel of others, it's probably wise for us to as well. God has revealed his will to us in his word. And he has given us means for finding clarity even when it's less clear. And because of this, we can experience peace in our relationship with God rather than being anxious and confused about what he requires from us. But God doesn't just leave us with requirements and duties. Our God is a gracious king. And we can actually rejoice in our freedom from the law. Up to this point in the passage, this letter hasn't actually been delivered to the church in Antioch yet. We've just kind of been given a sneak peek of what it says and what they're planning on doing with it. In verse 30, we see that this group of church leaders arrive in Antioch with the letter, and they gather the congregation together to read it. And in verse 31, we see that the church rejoiced because of its encouragement. And we might miss the reason for their rejoicing if we're not taking this letter in the broader context of the chapter. After all, this, this letter gave the church in Antioch four requirements. How is that a cause for rejoicing? How are requirements encouragement? It's because the church in Antioch has seen that their salvation is not dependent on their obedience to the law. They have seen that, yes, there are things that God requires of us, but they are a response to our salvation, not the cause of our salvation. I remember when I was a kid how excited I would get when it started snowing out. And it wasn't because it was, like, magical or beautiful to me. It wasn't because I was excited to go sledding or skiing. No, the reason why I would get excited was because maybe... Just maybe it meant we would get a snow day from school. And nowadays when there's a snow day, you parents, like, you might get a text or an email from the school district, or you can just hop online and see uh, if the school is canceled. But back when we were kids, we had to turn on the news and watch that scroller slowly creep across the bottom of the screen. And it would go in alphabetical order, and the anticipation would just build as the scroller got closer and closer to the schools that start with your letter. And if your school didn't show up this round, what did you do? You just wait in anticipation for it to go around again. Maybe this time our school will be on there. And it would seem to take forever for that scroller to creep all the way back around. But then that glorious moment when the scroller works its way back around and we would see New London schools, public, private, closed. Yes! No school, freedom! 
For me and my brothers, we would throw on our snow gear, we'd run outside, build snow forts, tear around on the four-wheeler. Those days were the best. Well, I got to imagine that that level of anticipation for the church in Antioch had to be something like that, but probably fused with a lot more anxiety and tension. I mean, their standing with God was in the balance. Waiting to hear whether you have to go to school is one thing. Waiting to hear whether you have to keep the law in order to earn your salvation is a whole other thing. And unlike the church in Antioch, we have the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. We know circumcision is not required for our salvation. We know our standing before God is not dependent on our works. Don't we? The truth is, we all have an inner legalist. We all have that voice inside us that says, you're not good enough. You need to do better. If you want to be on God's good side, you need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to do this and that more. Hear me, church. Those are lies. It's good to pray. It's good to read the Bible. It's good to pursue sanctification, to be more like Christ. Those are essential and necessary parts of the Christian life. But they are not what will save you. If you have placed your faith in Christ alone, He has saved you. He kept all those laws perfectly, knowing that we could never, and He bore the wrath of the Father in our place. It's done. It's finished. Flip over to the cover of your worship guide. It says there, the ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them that God has made peace with the world. Peace with God is something we do not have to earn. It's a free gift from him that we can receive by faith. Putting your faith in yourself and your ability to live a good life will destroy you. Through Christ, we have been set free from the law. I feel like I need to add a word of explanation here. When I say freedom from the law, we can misunderstand that. If on one end of the spectrum is you know, legalism and rule-keeping, on the other end of the spectrum is license and just doing whatever we want. If keeping the law doesn't earn me God's favor, why should I keep it at all? If God is just going to forgive me, why should I not sin? Well, if you have genuine faith in Christ, he will forgive you all of your sins. He will remove them as far as the east is from the west. But if you have genuine faith in Christ, you won't want to sin. If you have faith in Christ, you've been given a new heart. You've received the Holy Spirit. You've been unified with Christ. 
A heart that has been so radically changed from the inside out can't continue to go opposite of what our loving Father wants for us. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, keeping God's commands doesn't earn his favor, but it is the evidence. It is the natural outworking of faith. And in the same way, if we're living in long-term patterns of unrepentant sin, that may may very well be a sign that we've never trusted in Christ. If that sounds like you, let me encourage you. Place your faith in Jesus today. Turn from your sin and turn to him instead. He loves you. He will welcome you with open arms. Well, whether you think you sound more like the legalist do-gooder or the licentious do-whatever-I-want person, let me tell you, there is a better way to live. And that is what the church in Antioch is rejoicing in, that they're free to simply rest in Christ and his finished work. And this is the reason that we can rejoice alongside them. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, there's a reason why I titled this sermon Emotional Roller Coaster. There's no easy, smooth transition to the next part of this passage. We're coming from this high point of rejoicing in the freedom of the gospel, and now we're shifting to this section that talks about this intense conflict between Paul and Barnabas. But this theme of peace is still there, even in the midst of conflict. But rather than focusing on our peace that we experience with God, this is focusing more on the peace that we can have with each other because of God. The reason for our peace, whether it's God or with each other, the reason is the same, because our God is a gracious king. And because of this, we can walk through conflict in love. After spending some extended time with the church in Antioch, we see in verse 36, Paul suggests to Barnabas that it's time to move on. And he says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas, he agrees with Paul that this is a good idea. But here's where the disagreement comes in. Barnabas wants to take John, who's also called Mark, with them. This is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and he also happens to be the cousin of Barnabas. Verse 38, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There's just a brief mention of this incident that he's referring to back in chapter 13. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This happened during Paul's first missionary journey. He's about to go on his second. Mark left Paul and Barnabas to return home to Jerusalem. And we're not given a reason for why Mark left. Some scholars have suggested it was something as trite as uh, he was homesick or he didn't want to make the difficult journey. 
But whatever the reason was, Paul clearly thought it was unacceptable. The NIV actually states it, uh, they state it a little more sharply saying that Mark had deserted them. But this was Barnabas's cousin. And Barnabas is an encourager. He wants to give Mark another chance. But Paul clearly saw it more black and white. He thought Mark was unfit for this job. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Verse 41. Going through Syria and Cilicia. This dynamic duo of Paul and Barnabas who had been working together for so long, they separated. They agreed on the mission, but strongly disagreed on who to bring. So they went their separate ways. Well, for some of us, this kind of disagreement, it might hit close to home. It might bring up memories of an argument with your spouse or a family member or a friend an argument that changed the course of your relationship. But we need to be careful not to read our own experiences into Scripture. To put it another way, what we've experienced in life should not shape the way that we interpret Scripture. Well, up to this point in the sermons that I've preached here, I don't think I've made any office references, and that's taken a lot of restraint on my part. I know not everyone here is as big of a fan of the office office as me or David or Adrian, so I try to hold back, but here I go with my first one, so bear with me. If you haven't seen the show, the first couple seasons are built around this romantic tension between two co-workers, Jim and Pam, and Pam is engaged to another guy. But Jim is secretly in love with Pam. And after a couple seasons of the show, he finally works up the courage to confess his feelings to her. And even though Pam, she cares about Jim deeply as a friend, she gently turns him down. She is engaged, after all. She chooses Roy over Jim. And even though Jim doesn't hold it against her, he's not mad at her, he doesn't hate her, the next episode opens with Jim working in a different branch of the company. He moved away because he knew their paths were incompatible. Well, what we see here between Paul and Barnabas, this is not a friendship dissolving into hatred. It's closer to an incompatibility of their visions for ministry. Yes, there was conflict. There was sharp disagreement. Maybe even feelings were hurt. We don't need to downplay that. But we need to be careful not to read this separation as permission for us to separate ourselves from difficult people. It's not permission as just a blanket statement that we can cut people out of our lives. And when I say that, I want to be careful. I want to acknowledge that there might be extreme situations in relationships where the healthiest option might be to set up hard boundaries. I mean, relationships are complicated and painful, 
And it's tempting to just block someone, you know, rather than deal with them. But if you're thinking about doing that, please don't make these decisions on your own. Again, seek the counsel of your pastors and your elders or a biblical counselor. If you don't know, we actually have a licensed professional biblical counselor on our staff here, Tony Beach, whose contact info is on the back of your worship guide, along with all the pastors and elders info. Don't walk through these decisions alone. Those situations where we might be justified in separating ourselves from someone, those are the exception to the rule. The rule that we see throughout Scripture is one of forgiveness and long-suffering and reconciliation. And where do we see this more than in the person and work of Jesus Christ? I mean, talk about separation. Sin separated us from God. And he would have been perfectly justified to stay separated from us. But that's not who he is. He is a God of long-suffering, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. And it's because we have been reconciled to God through Christ that we can be reconciled to each other. And we don't know exactly how this disagreement went down between Paul and Barnabas, but all the evidence points to the fact that there was no lingering bitterness between them. How do I know this? Later, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul would actually mention Barnabas in a positive light. Even Mark, the guy who Paul didn't want to bring with him, three times throughout the New Testament, uh, Paul mentions him positively. If there's any principle for us to take away from this separation between Paul and Barnabas, it's not that we're justified across the board in separating ourselves from difficult people, but that when conflict arises in our broken world, we can still have grace toward each other and peace with each other because of the grace and peace that we have received through Christ. Talking about conflict, take a minute and think about the most difficult boss that you've ever had. Kids in the room, think about the most difficult teacher you've ever had. That's a trap if you're homeschooled. <laughs> Having a difficult boss or a difficult teacher can make your job or your class a nightmare. It can feel impossible to get along with them. The anxiety that they cause you and everyone else can make it impossible to get along with each other. They can even cause you to learn to hate your job or hate the class that they teach. But that is not who God is. He is not an overbearing boss. He's not a teacher who gives an impossible amount of homework. Our God is a gracious king who wants you not to be filled with anxiety and confusion, but peace. Peace in knowing that the same God who created the universe is the same God who loves you enough to die for you. He is a God of grace. And in his grace, he has made his will known to us. He has given us freedom from the law, and he has enabled us to walk through conflict in love. 
peace with God and peace with each other. Let's pray.